This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the last episode of Einstein and Go-Go for 2017. We're a science show. If you haven't listened to us before, unfortunately, uh, this is the last show for the year, but that's okay. There's plenty you can podcast. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is about half the team. The rest of them are all sunbaking somewhere in a frozen wasteland, or I think Dr. Ray just got off a plane. He's, he's absolutely KO'd. But we've got Dr. Jeff. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And How are you? It's your last show. It's well, my well, last sort of, sort of, sort of last show. <laughs> moving to Geelong. Yeah, moving to Geelong in the mm. in the new year. Take up a new position at School of Medicine, Deacon Warm Ponds. Very nice. Very good. And I prefer to live uh, to live locally and not travel for an hour and a half a day. Yes, <laughs> and ideally have a, c- a sea change as well. Yeah, that no, sounds very good. And I rock in the Darth Vader T-shirt. So. <laughs> yep. I'm going to wear this in the first yeah, day yeah. of lecturing. Yeah, no, but yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, you want to? Yeah, because that's actually, for you. That's subdued. <laughs> yes, I, I notice I'm not wearing my usual like uh, weird Christmas clothing you, today. You know, yeah, something's going going on. Yeah. I have to get sensible uh, to be a, a lecturer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Uh, does, that mean, does that mean women to be sensible? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, Dr. Jen, I might as well introduce you. So you sensibly spoke up. Morning, Dr. Shane. I'm feeling very sensible this morning. Yeah. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> scratch the surface. So, <laughs> and Dr. Ewan, Bites good morning. tongue. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, just say, say, say little, say little. <clears throat> Dr. I'll go Lyndon because she's so close to the mic. Oh, good morning, Dr. Good morning. Shane. How are you? A resident climatologist. Yes, I'm here. I've already eaten my body weight in cherries. It's 11 o'clock. Officially, <laughs> summer is here. <laughs> you did bring in some good cherries. And you know me, cherries and the cricket and I'm done. That's all I need. Summertime, the yeah, equation yeah. for summer. Oh, yeah, it's great. And Dr. Laura. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Now, you've got Zika. Yep. Yeah, yeah I, work on, I work on infectious disease and I love it. Yeah, I mean, you got you got to, you got to picture this in the kitchen, folks. Uh, earlier on, we're all sitting there, and, oh, and Laura comes in and she says, "You know, I've, I've had a nosebleed that's lasted twelve she hours." Said, and I'm having this conversation now, so we don't have it on air. Yeah, but, and, but, and you know, if you've seen where she works, there's a PC2 lab there where they have a whole lot of nasty things and all sorts of stuff, and working on Zika and. And then I knows. said, "Let's all now get cozy in this small room in a nice close proximity and just see what happens." <laughs> We've just been moving further you know? and further away. Can we rule out other options? Bowler, uh, what else have we got on the list? I don't know. Look, if I'm zero, Linda, Linda's now number one. We're, we're nice and close. I'm sorry. So if both of our noses just start bleeding, everyone right. just so runs. Someone just take run. a picture silence. and note their proximity and we'll see, <laughs> see what happens in the next. See, it's, it's interesting the various people in the room, though, because Dr. Jeff, being, you know, medical background-ish, he would probably try and find a cure. The ecologists over here, they just bury you, like I, I suspect, yeah? You just no, man, I'd study it. Parasites. Parasites, parasites? rock. Yeah, you I thought you'd bury... <laughs> See, for me, physics guy, I'm sorry, you're getting irradiated real fast. <laughs> it's not going to be pleasant. No, I'd, I'd, It'll say, be I'd say crack out the cheek swabs and uh, <laughs> get those biosamples taken. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you what, well... We, she, she, and, and look, see, we've just done a, a test right there, clinical trial, N equals one. Uh, you said that you were worried that if you laughed, you might start bleeding again, and it hasn't happened. I'm, I'm going to go straight back to the lab after this, okay? <laughs> yeah, take that virus back where you found it. Can you let us all know what we've got yep. once you've worked it out, please? I'll, I'll send an email. Uh, and we have Liv, of course, doing our Twitter feed. Liv was, um, she came in because we told her we had apple pie. Right, Liv? Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, but then we realised that she only woke up two minutes before she got here, quickly brushed her teeth, and didn't eat anything. So, anyway, folks, what we've got today for you is uh, essentially the year in review. We're going to talk about all the amazing things that we saw this year. Uh, some of them not so amazing, I suppose. They might just be funny, but uh, things that really caught our interest for the next 55 minutes just to see the year out. They're all looking at me like, who's, yeah, who's going to go first? Pick. See, this is what happens when we don't coordinate things. And, you know, didn't I tell you, Laura, that you were first because we were worried you'd start bleeding? I can go first. Okay. Because uh, I've got a very... Don't ex- grab the mic. Don't one. grab the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, if you, you, you wouldn't realise this. I'm a mic grabber. This is the day where we kind of just lay it all out there, but Dr. Laura is a mic grabber. Yeah, and you're not allowed cool. to touch the microphones yep. on radio yep. because it makes yep. an awful, you know, yep. twangy noise. Sorry, and, everybody. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Okay, what me. do you got? Well, okay, um, this is a real contender for the top news of 17. People may be thinking, is she going to talk about gravitational waves? Obviously not. I'm not a... F- you know. Anyway, what I am going to talk for my top piece of news, or at least it was yesterday, is that there is a new species of shrimp that's been described. <gasps> yep. Yep. Hold on there. Okay. Shrimp or prong? Shrimp. Anyway, it's a new species of snapping or pistol shrimp. And I'm excited because I think that these guys are really underestimated. So this year, um, they named this guy Pink Floydy after Pink Floyd because the snapper claw is pink. And apparently the researchers in Oxford always said if we find one with a pink claw and they've been waiting for years, we're going to call this Pink Floyd. Now, the reason why I wanted to highlight these shrimp in case you haven't heard of pistol shrimp or snapping shrimp is that these guys are incredible. They're only two centimeters long, Mm. but they're a contender for the loudest creature in the ocean, when they snap their claw, that goes to 210 decibels, which makes them the second oh. loudest creature in the ocean next to the... Uh, Humans. <laughs> <laughs> next to the sperm whale. So that's pretty amazing. Wow. These, yeah, so these guys loud. are only, are only wow. two centimetres. Um, they may, when they bang their claws, it's louder than a jet engine, but it's, it's not actually the claws coming together. It's the jet bubble. It's that they create a bubble when they mm. snap these claws, and it's the implosion of that bubble. And when they do that, it's so loud, they can actually kill small fish nearby and stun fish it's amazing superheroes please question if they are the second loudest thing in the ocean how come it's a new species of discovery how do we only know about them now Oh, people have known about snapping shrimp for quite some time. This is a new species because it's got a pink claw. Ah. So it's a great question. So mm. the pink claw, new species, Pink Floydy. Now, 2017, it's not just the Pink Floyd shrimp that's been found. I started to look into this and I was like, oh, you know, that's amazing. You're a scientist. You get to name things after your favorite rock band. This same group has named something after Mick Jab- Jagger as well. I think it was a wasp. And then I just had a little <laughs> look about the year in review of 2017. So many new spiders have been identified and all you need to do is get your favorite celebrity and put an eye on the end so many really? new species of spider the wow. bernie sandai the michelle obama eye. uh what else is the, the david bowie eye leo dicaprio eye please so it's, it's the <laughs> end of the year so my brain is failing me but there is a guy from a very famous show called house of cards that i would like to name after a spider <laughs> Ooh, good one actor's name Damn it, my brain is failing. Gambino. Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey, Aye. thank you. Kevin Spacey. Yep. Spacey Eye. It's, it's going to have been done. I mean, the wasps and beetles, yeah. everybody's naming them after everything. Anybody named anything after Trump yet? Oh, you wouldn't. There is the really slimy. There is a wasp thing. named after Donald Trump Eye. <laughs> is that right? But the pistol shrimp, these guys are amazing. They're I, amazing. I, I, for those of us who have marine aquariums, and I might be one of those people. They can smash the glass. They are tank busters. <gasps> and yeah. if wow. you, and what happens is when you get the, the live rock and so forth into a tank, you often don't know that you have one because they're often very, you know, you get the babies in there and then they grow up and all of a sudden then you start hearing this 
late at night and you think, oh shit, I've got one. <laughs> and, and they can break the glass in an aquarium. Like they are incredibly strong and they're incredibly hard to catch because they, you know, they end up in a rock. And, you know, usually a cottage cordial bottle will suffice. You can lure them in and get them out, but they are really problematic. I had one in one of my tanks a couple of years ago and I had to lure him out. So that's hmm. an interesting, interesting subject. How many, how many other animals kill by sound? There can't be that many, can they? Yeah, I have no idea. Anybody mm. can think, mm. I knew a couple of guys from high school who could just, like, <laughs> talk. <laughs> oh, I, know, you. I know a couple uh, of people that yeah. speak very loud. And, and they didn't kill you, but you were, you were tempted if a sharp object <laughs> was nearby. To, yeah. Anyway, interesting. A new oh. species. Blown us all away for 2017. Wow, yeah. yeah, no, it's cool Whoa. stuff. <laughs> Doctor, you and he's, he's, he's ready to come out of the it's cake. A, it's a beautiful segue, actually. Yeah. I think we'll stay in the marine realm and talk about Octolantis. Oh. So, probably my favourite group of organisms on the planet are cephalopods. Yep. They're amazing. So, we're talking squid, cuttlefish, um, you know, octopus. They're incredible animals. And so, they've found this new group um, that are living together. So, it's traditionally thought that octopus are relatively solitary. So, they only really come together to mate, and that's about it. But they found this new population, which they're coining Octolantis, where these octopus... And these are gloomy octopus, apparently, which sort of goes against them living together. But they're living together in, in an octopus city, essentially. In an octopus's garden by the sea. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. Very it's well done. <laughs> yeah. So it's, and it's, it's really quite fascinating that they've found this population that are living together and they're interacting with each other. They exclude other octopuses that try and come into their little city. Um, it's quite aggressive, apparently. There's a lot of fighting going on. There was another previous population called Octopolis where they, they basically saw... <laughs> the equivalent of an octopus fight club, where octopuses would sort of fight oh. each other, and yeah, pretty yeah, cool stuff, cool. right? Um, and because what living... does it look like? Octopuses fighting? Yeah, eight, eight, pretty brutal. Eight I arms mean, to yeah. fight with. You yeah. hold, you that... hold seven arms with your seven arms and slap with the eighth. And, <laughs> so, and that's the beak you got to watch out for when yeah, that oh, beak yeah, comes yeah. out. That nasty little beak that can tear you apart. So, um, and they're living basically the remains of the animals that they've killed, which are basically shellfish. But I'm just wondering now, are they actually living together to avoid this shrimp? Oof. Maybe because you know octopus pretty pretty intelligent little critters. Yeah. Maybe they've gone, you know what, these pistol shrimps are not so keen on that. Let's get together and kind of, you know, yeah. get a bit of, bit of defence, soak like in numbers. It's like the mosquito to us. It's really, really small than us, but it's damn annoying. So it's you want possible. to kind of move away from it. But I think it's, it's a fascinating idea, and what the scientists are trying to work out is why has this particular population of this species, because not all the individuals of this species do this, why here? Why have they sort of formed mm. this little city? And it kind of... There's theories around evolution about why certain species become social. And you think, well, maybe they've sort of found this structure that sort of permits, you know, individuals coming together and all of a sudden sort of social interactions develop. And you can kind of see how mm. evolution could mm. kind of, um, you know, allow that sort of thing to happen or to drive that thing. So it's quite a fascinating kind of study about sociality as well in a species, of course, other than us. So, yeah, mm. fascinating stuff. Because it's amazing when you... Often people go straight to what's the advantage, but I often like to think more of what's the disadvantage of being alone. Mm. So yeah. what what you know what's the disadvantage of an octopus being alone because we know how great they are at that. Like they're just amazing. They have their certain areas. They you know often the the range over which they have sort of control is quite large relative to their size. And so what's the disadvantage, yeah. you know? It's a great it's, question. It's a really hard one yeah. to picture. But they are I'm with you. The cuttlefish I mean, yeah. once, once, the once they can work out how to get onto land, it, it really is game over. Oh, they can. Us. They yeah. can. There was a story yeah. earlier this year of them in, in, uh, in, um, Wales. There were, 
they were literally walking onto land. Were they bearing arms? They were <laughs> driving cars. <laughs> They're bearing lots of arms. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they didn't have a leg to stand on. And uh, but some of them, some of them were dying, but some of them were, you know, were, were, were popping back in. But maybe yeah. it's the first foray. Exactly. But your your point is interesting because that. That segues to my, to my, I don't know whether we're going to a track now, but I'll segue after the track. Alright, well, yeah, let's, uh. A delayed segue. A delayed segue? Yeah. If the word segue is used once more in the show, <laughs> I'm going to start throwing stuff. Because we don't, I mean, we're, we're a public radio station, we don't, we don't do segues. Because that, that, use that word again. But it implies planning. <laughs> it implies we thought, implies yeah, we thought about, I mean, do, <laughs> What was the conversation we were having in the kitchen before? <laughs> I've lost it now. We had a lot of conversations. Yeah. But there was one that was just... Oh, that's right. There was one about polywaffles. There that was the one, one about polywaffles. Folks, something to think about at home. <laughs> oh, yeah. Poly- the Einstein and Go-Go team spent most of its intellectual power before the show trying to determine, oh. a.k.a. the film Caddyshack, what sort of chocolate bar would be the most effective fake tootie in the pool. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what we do in our off hours. So um, it's, ha- it's yeah. scientific thought. It's you know, just think about it at home. We just g- give it some, give it some. There's thought. a lot of variables yeah. to control. Yeah, though. there's a lot. Yeah. Buoyancy, texture, deterioration, shape. color, yeah. tone, yeah. odor, taste. Yeah. So, it's all got to be in there. It always uh, comes back to toilet humour, doesn't it? In the yeah. way, yeah. tweet Literally. Your, tweet your favourite to it, folks. <laughs> Liv will retweet it. If you if you look hashtag at hashtag poo science, let's go. Yeah, hashtag uh, fake poo whisper. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, like fake arrow. news, but fake poo. And um and we'll we'll put it up on the website. <laughs> Whatever the uh, the one that gets the most votes, I think that's a great idea because it does bring in so many fields of science. And uh, let's go with uh, assuming it's a uh, freshwater. Yeah, fresh yeah, water pool. Fresh water for yeah. sure. With salt, oh, oh. No, chlorine, no, fresh, salt. But, fresh water, um, fresh chlorine, water. middle of summer. Pool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Triple. <sighs> and we're back on the air. Uh, it's a science program. The, uh, I think the leading contender for the, um, chocolate bar at the moment is the polywaffle. Is that? Liv's giving me the, <laughs> yeah, we, she's giving me picnic. the nod. We should have a, tri- a, t- a Twitter poll, shouldn't we? Yeah, we're doing it. We're doing it. Oh, Liv's, yeah. Liv's on it. She's, uh, she's going nuts. All right, doctor, <laughs> doctor. <laughs> as nuts as a picnic, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, where's that term when you do? Uh, doctor Jeff, what do you got for us? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to tell my story backwards. And not, not literally, but, um, I used to, anyway, that's another story. Um, I used to know Puff the Magic Dragon backwards. Oh, really? really backwards. Huh. Anyway, that's. Um, so it, it was this seg. Uh, this follows on from uh, from <laughs> Doctor Ewan's study. In that I'm talking about um, animal intelligence, and um, the, uh, the 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 part of the conclusion about this is why why I mean animals are intelligent in their own right, and I'll go back to um, why they are in a minute, um, and what's been our barrier in studying them. Uh, but one of the, the, the barriers for animals becoming, making the extra step that we have is that we, our advantage is that we've pulled knowledge through trans, through translation of cultural knowledge, just like we're doing now. We're talking mm. science with each other. So maybe they, you know, and, and at the moment, most of the animal kingdom apart from, actually, that's probably another assumption that there's not sharing of knowledge because bees share knowledge, ants share knowledge. Anyway, that, let's throw that theory out the window. But the idea of gaining knowledge as a community is forming these communities. 
and and sharing knowledge and of course it's humans we have the expanded cerebral cortex etc but we have been looking at animal intelligence through a very anthropocentric manner which is can i it's like it's like if you want to measure um intelligence in dolphins you you have a questionnaire and ask them questions one to five multiple choice that's how we ask questions to humans the answer is no you don't ask questions like that and there's many instances both in uh, uh, chimps and and um, and in elephants that we've asked a question one way and we've concluded that they're, they're not intelligent and then we've thought a better way of doing it was was uh, um for example in elephants, some, some scientists gave element, elephants a stick and some food out of reach, and yeah. they didn't reach for it because they worked out in the end that holding the stick, they couldn't smell the food, holding the stick in their trunk. So we've got to think cleverly about it. And I think the new stories of this year that captured my attention were the one mainly about the chimps having a better, chimpanzees having a better short-term memory than than humans remembering a sequence of about 12 numbers chimps can do it much better than us so there are some instances of which specific instances uh, that if you use a specific uh, measure of intelligence that some animals are more intelligent than us my favorite headline is sheep can recognize images of barack obama and emma watson cambridge university <laughs> study finds <laughs> so not that they watch a lot of tra trashy i'm going to say trashy uh, a lot of tv and read magazines but they were trained in a study to recognize these two faces did, did you only have to train one sheep and then all the other <laughs> sheep could do it well that that can that kind of social learning can <clears throat> happen in the animal kingdom it didn't happen in this case but what happened is it showed you that in Images of, images of famous people and then he put up images of those people once they'd learned them for a food reward they put another image near of someone completely different near that image and they actually put their image at various angles just like you'd recognize the same person at different angles and they all, 80% of the time they recognize that person as that person and of course anybody anybody um, uh, that has pets will obviously realize that the the pets mm. recognize them and it's you know and it's like it's 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 almost a no-brainer and it's almost if you turn the tables around and imagine the sheep saying to us a sheep is saying well do you think you can recognise me the next time you'd see me rather than one of my mates? Bar yeah. once for yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, yeah, if you think it's very subjective, the measure, uh, a measure of, um, uh, of intelligence. So you're saying that Facebook's face recognition algorithm is sheep. Lots of sheep in the room. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's your mum. Yes, it could be, yeah. That's your mum again. Yeah, and it's, we have had this kind of, as I say, conscious bias, and, and one theory is is that we, we don't want animals to seem very intelligent because we eat them, or many, mm. many of us mm. eat them. And we want to say, well, you know, we're the, the top of the pinnacle. And as we heard about octopuses early on, they're very clever in their own way. And can we really tell what you, can we tell that our cat's, uh, cat is planning our destruction? <laughs> or can, is it just sitting there lapping up its milk? And many people believe, I mean, for example, take, um, take the dogs and the, the guilty, anybody see that meme this year about guilty looks from animals? Oh, I think oh, I yeah. did see that one. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. you know, they, they feel guilt. They've done something that you're a naughty boy oh, and yeah. they kind of, you know, got that funny look on their face yeah. like, like a child would. And so many, it's just how you, it seems like it's just how you spot them okay as i said that you know um octopuses uh, and cats are not ruling the world yet 
Um, but but they once, need but that. once we die out, but once we, yes, exactly. <laughs> and there was an amazing science story I remember that got me into science as a young child. Uh, this magazine called Science Digest. I don't think it's around anymore. Oh, I remember that. I've got some of those in a in a cabinet yeah, somewhere. Imagine home. if you know what if, if if mammals had been wiped out and dinosaurs hadn't. Would we be reptilian now? Would reptiles have evolved into say into into beings you know about our height? Mm. Um, and and that's what fascinates me of course about science fiction are there other worlds out there in which there is reptilian life or you know uh, silicon versus carbon based life and i think sometimes we we again all this kind of comes back to that idea that there's amazing science out there we've got to kind of toss away our sometimes our preconceptions like our anthropocentrism that we are the pinnacle of evolution and realize we're at a total parallel to all the other species. In fact, if you look at other species, they've been doing things a lot longer than we have. Insects, for example, termites and stuff, creating these amazing cities. So in some ways, we're just as clever as the other, um, as the other animals. With, there are just other animals. And of course, if you look at some humans in particular and some groups of humans. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> you think to yourself, there what are the lots, hell? You know, yeah. there are, look, the, the, um, the, um, um, the, um, What's a sea, it's this, the elegant worm, Cena rhabditis elegans. It's got about 180 to 200 brain cells. And it still learns and has memory. So. Slime mold. Yeah, slime, slime mold yeah. is a very simple organism. It can solve mazes better than a lot of humans yeah. can. And, um, the last example I give is, is honeybees. There's a, a mathematical conundrum called the salesman problem where you've got dozens of homes that a salesman has to visit. What's the most efficient way? But um, honeybees have already solved that. Mm. Not only have they solved that with the, all the flowers, that they do pass it on to their hive mates as well. So it is really just want people to just ha have a think a about how clever s different animals can be in their own way and how we view animals as we should, I think we should view them more as, as equals rather than to be dominated over. But that's my personal view. That's a good call. Dr. Jen, over to you. Well, I'm sticking with the animal theme. I'm feeling pretty happy in this room today, all these animal stories. <clears throat> but when I was in high school, I was lucky enough to spend a year as an exchange student in Europe. And one of my many amazing memories of that year was going to a zoo in Europe and watching the zookeeper take their, is it called a flock of penguins? Their huddle of penguins for a walk around a the zoo. <laughs> and so this big group hmm. of emperor penguins went for a walk around the zoo and they were enormous. I'd never seen an emperor penguin in the flesh before and it was, you know, it was quite amazing this big group of penguins wow. waddling around. Yeah, so they were taken out of their enclosure and waddled around the, you know... It was like the a senator or something. <coughs> or something. It's got a weird... Dr. Ewan's looking it up name. right <laughs> now. He'll, he'll, tell yeah, he'll tell us, he'll in, tell a us in a second. Anyway, so my memory is that they were very big penguins but I looked it up and emperor penguins stand about 1.2 metres tall, weigh about 35 kilos but just this week a story came out where, that they've discovered a new fossil of a penguin that would have stood 1.77 metres tall. Wow. So we're talking way taller than me. It's about 5 foot 10 or so and weighed 100 kilos, which I think That's is... That's a huge penguin. Quite yeah, amazing yeah. to That's imagine. That's a human-sized penguin. Yes, yeah, so looking the eye in, in a reasonably yeah. tall human and way towering over someone like yeah. me, which I where, think is pretty where impressive. Are these 
Who are these terrifying penguins? <laughs> <laughs> it's a fossil, my friend. Okay. It's right. a fossil. Which pole? <laughs> have, have penguins ever been mm. on the North Pole, or, or, or was this found uh, on the no, South Pole? So this pole? is actually found in New Zealand. So oh, this, yeah. is, this is a fossil that was found over a decade ago, but the fossils were inside this incredibly hard sedimentary rock, and it's taken a decade to work out oh, how wow. to get them out and That's work cool. out what they are. And so they've just published this story, and so they've named it the uh, Kumi Manu Kumi. I'm sure I know I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Apologies. Is Maori for monster, and then Manu is bird. So this was the monster bird. And so imagine that a hundred kilo uh, penguin. And so the fossils put it at about 55 to 60 million years ago, which is very oh, okay. interesting because what it's suggesting is that at the time that the mass extinction occurred at the end of the Cretaceous and all the enormous marine mm. reptiles went extinct, suddenly this lifestyle opportunity opened up <laughs> for massive penguins mm. that could rule the oceans and be catching all the stuff in the oceans. And it turns out that we, we know of other mega penguins and this one isn't the biggest. There's evidence of a fossil from Antarctica and that penguin is thought to be up to 115 kilos and two metres tall. And it turns out that this new one isn't closely related to that one. So this gigantism, they call it in penguins, has independently evolved a couple of times. And so the question yeah. is, why did all these mega penguins go extinct? And it's probably because these large marine mammals evolved and ah. they kind of took over the oceans. But Just the big stuff. I love it. Massive. I mean, it's that, that's huge. I mean, Steven Spielberg, instead of jaws, it would have been beaks. Yeah, um, seriously. And apparently but, this one had a really sharp, long I, beak. I mean, these are big suckers. You wonder what they ate, though. Like, mm. what would they have eaten? Like Sea lions. No, I mean, you know, <laughs> big, big snapper, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, what would they eat, you know, like swordfish. Yeah, I don't know. Absolutely. They would eat big because penguins are fast. Yeah, like people don't super think fast. of people see all the imagery of penguins on land. Oh yeah. yeah. And you, okay, let's face it, on land not so great. But when you get them in the water, they're fast. Absolutely. You know, really fast. You wonder how fast a penguin that's a two meter penguin. How fast? Oh, that'd wow. be like a hammerhead shark. Like it would move quick. So I'm just picturing how cool it would be to go to a zoo and watch this gaggle of two meter tall two, penguins yeah. walking around. Hopefully not trying to eat the children. Oh, it that were there. It wouldn't be cool. It would be a massacre. It was torturous. Are you? Have you got the penguin problem? I think I, I might. Actually. You might. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think we get some penguins in here and yeah. Because just show you some random photos, and yeah. one in twenty will be a penguin staring at you. I just wanted to update you all on my extensive internet <laughs> search. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The options for a collective noun of penguins are colony, crèche, huddle, parade, parcel, raft, rookery, and waddle. I prefer waddle. See, I waddle. said waddle, uh, a waddle, waddle of penguins. Yes. Oh, but they waddle on, on land only. True. It only works on land. You see them in the water, it's not going to make much well, sense. Well, that's why we call them a bullet of penguins. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> a quick question about about penguins. It's related to megafauna. I think the one story this year about is is scientific proof that Aboriginal people have uh, been in Australia at least sixty to 70,000 years before the extinction of the megafauna, of all the megafauna. Now, these penguins, did they coexist with... Now, I mean, New Zealanders are a lot younger than than, than Australian Aboriginals, but could, uh, mm. when did is there any uh, data on when these giant penguins died out? 
Uh, I'm sure somebody knows, but I don't. You're talking 50, 50 million years yeah, old. Yeah, I'm talking yeah, that was so not 50,000. Yeah, I'm yeah, talking yeah. 60 to 50 million years ago yeah, when yeah. they were around. So T-Rex stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't yeah. think anyone's ever seen any rock art of massive penguins. But, <laughs> <laughs> but how cool would it be if someone found some? Maybe in the well, south of Tasmania or something. <laughs> yeah. And not all arts to scale. Let's just be clear That's on true. that. You know, like, I mean, <laughs> anyone with kids knows that not all art is to scale. So, especially, and the stuff I particularly like is the stuff with humans and dinosaurs in the one picture. Yeah, not, yeah. not that you see that in Indigenous Australian cave paintings, <laughs> but you do see it in kids' pictures all the time. So, yeah, you've got to be careful of scale. There's no scale bars. <laughs> anyway, You're a scientist. Uh, Surely you taught your kids to use scale bars on uh, their Yeah, not in kindergarten. Let them go. Three. Triple. Uh, you are listening to Triple R. We've got the recent results in on the uh, the floaty poll, and I think the poly waffle is currently in the lead, which is um, interesting because they are rare. They're hard to get, but Doctor Ewan assures us they're still available. So, <laughs> anyway, uh, for me, the thing that uh, really jumped out this year, uh, and something that I guess has been close to my heart for a long time, is the end of the Cassini mission, or as it should really be called, the Cassini Huygens mission. Um, most people forgot about the Huygens probe because it got dumped into Titan, but. I just wanted to take people back and give you a bit of a bit of a sort of a history, potted history of what what happened there. So I remember doing the story on the launch of Cassini when it was launched back in the fifteenth uh, of October, nineteen ninety seven. So a little while after I'd started being on air, um, it then had to pick up some speed. So it did a Venus flyby. So in order to get to Saturn, it had to you know within our lifetime, it had to speed up quite substantially. So they did a bit of a gravity slingshot around um, Venus. It then did a a lap around the sun, came back, did another gravity assist from Venus, so two two passes by Venus, which was interesting. Then it came back to Earth, bit of gravity assist from the Earth, never hurts, so speeding up yet again. <laughs> it then went through the asteroid belt, which was, um, you know, people think about the asteroid belt, and it's not like Empire Strikes Back. It's, um, no. Don't it, it, spoil it for us. I'm so shame. disappointed yeah. now. They're a bit further apart. Um, you can actually go through their relatively low risk. So, oh, yeah, okay. it's not, it's not. So, so can you still park your Millennium Falcon on one though? Or oh not? yeah, there's okay. some big ones. Good. Yeah, okay. with, with monsters inside. And what about, <laughs> and what about Bernard? Uh, I heard this year there was a new planet discovered called Bernard in near the asteroid belt. Is that true or is that just fake news? I, I'm not sure what news sites you're looking <laughs> on. Bernardsawesome.com. Is that where you read that? <laughs> That's right. I don't think it's there. some guy named Bernard. Uh, I'm sure there's a guy named Bernard. Anyway, uh, so through the asteroid belt, then, of course, uh, on the 29th of December 2000, so keep in mind it was launched in 1997, so it had been out there for a few years, uh, it went past Jupiter and took some great shots of Jupiter. Not in orbit of Jupiter, though, so not like um, the Juno spacecraft at the moment, which is orbiting Jupiter, uh, but it just sort of went past Jupiter, got a bit more of a gravity assist, so it's going pretty fast by this stage, and you've got to remember Saturn is a long way out, so it's not, not nearby. Um, then it started getting uh, fairly close to Saturn, or at least on approach, and on the 31st of May 2004, so remembering it was launched in 97, so they've been going for a while at this point, it discovered two new moons of Saturn that we didn't know about. So even the strongest telescopes in the world had not um, seen these moons. And that brought Saturn's total up to, any guesses? 60. Wow. Take that, Earth. Anyway, <laughs> 60 moons Saturn has an extraordinary, you know, co- complex environment. 
compared to, you know, just the Earth-Moon system, which is pretty simple. Uh, then, basically, it entered orbit into Saturn. And it was, at that point, uh, Cassini was the first craft to ever, ever orbit Saturn. So we hadn't put anything in orbit. The Voyager craft, uh, one and two, of course, went past Saturn, mm. but they didn't stop and orbit Saturn. It's a lot easier just to fling something past a planet than it is to actually have it captured in orbit. It's very difficult. So um, Cassini entered orbit in 2004 and not long after that um, on the 23rd of December right before Christmas and there's some great photos you can find them online of all the the crew working on the the Huygens probe because they're all wearing Santa outfits and you think what why are these guys all dressed up as Santa but of course it was basically two days before Christmas and the Huygens probe was built by the European Space Agency so it kind of you know hitched a ride on top of Cassini um, which was done by NASA. And um, Huygens was um, then released and it landed on Titan on January 14th, uh, 2005. And what it showed us was that we, we didn't really know much about Titan because it's got such a thick atmosphere, uh, quite, quite highly complex uh, gases, and we found that its actual structure on the surface is not that different from Earth. So it has similar geological features mm. to Earth, which was pretty surprising. Um, on the 8th of March 2006, so about a year later, um, the Cassini craft detected what was just an astonishing find, which was liquid water on Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn. And that's sort of been the, the, the really big thing to come out of the whole Cassini mission is that this is probably the best candidate for, for life in our solar system other than the Earth. So that was pretty cool. And then, of course, we can, I could go through a hundred more, like there is literally an extraordinary array of things that um, Cassini has done for us in terms of our knowledge of Saturn and the Saturn system, and its 60-odd moons, uh, many of which it has, you know, intense uh, imagery of. But then if we fast forward to April 26th this year, this was when you may remember they started doing these deep dives through Saturn's rings. So in all the time that it had been in orbit around Saturn, Cassini had never passed through the rings themselves because that is more like Empire Strikes Back. Like, there's shit everywhere. So you don't want to be... <laughs> all is not lost. You're not just this in the swimming pool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're back to that. Um, so it started doing these deep dives through the rings. And, of course, all of this was its last sort of little onslaught. That was from April through to September. And then in September, uh, on the 15th, after 19 years and 11 months, so close, but mm. not quite the 20. Mm. Um, you know, it was, it was on the tarmac for a while before it took off. You've got to count a month there. Uh, <laughs> so about, you know, 20 years of this mission, it, they crashed, uh, the probe into Saturn. And you've got to think of what happened. Saturn is a gas giant, so the pressures are intense. And so this probe would have been squashed into something, you know, more like a beer can after the, after the intense pressure it experienced. But the, the thing I find most fascinating about this whole mission is the reason why they chose to crash this craft at the end because that was not the initial thinking behind it but this particular craft was built for a spe specific type of mission and it wasn't to find life more importantly there's no guarantee that it wasn't in some way contaminated with life from earth and so if you're going to leave a craft up there out of fuel out of power what you don't want is for it to accidentally end up on Enceladus or Titan two of the most prominent candidates for life other than on our planet that we'll, we'll, we'll be looking into in the future. So they had to make sure, like absolutely sure, that this craft was not going to be lurking around and accidentally wow. end up where they didn't want it. So 
that was the whole purpose of them eventually crashing, crashing into, into Saturn. I think it was, in, in a sense, it was a, you know, great end to a, a 20 year extraordinary adventure. What a beautiful story. I can imagine that in the early days, as you say, there were whole teams of Santas and mm. different people watching this mission, but towards the end, was it sort of two or three people's job to come in every day and monitor this well, or well, is it automated? No, the thing is, is actually the, the amount of data being sent back by Cassini right to the very end was extraordinary. So, the data it sent back on the moons and on the composition of the the gas plumes that were coming up. Um, you remember Enceladus has a frozen surface because it's exposed; it doesn't have an atmosphere. It's a frozen surface under which there is a liquid layer and some geothermal probably activity under that. Every now and then, you get these sort of geysers that spit the the, the water vapor out into space that instantly freezes. And Cassini was actually on occasion able to have a star on the far side of that vapour. So there was Cassini, the water vapour, and a star behind it. And then you can do spectroscopy. You can have the starlight passing through the water and you can start to work out what it's what the material is. So, you know, there was science, like, getting better probably towards the end than at the start of this mission, which was why it was so fascinating. And, and a large number of people still examining the data from, from that earlier this year. So an incre- you know, one of the most incredible sort of scenarios we've, we've seen in terms of success of a, a mission. I remember when I first broadcast this, and I referred to this thing as the size of a small bus, because it, it was not a small craft. It was a big, it was a big craft. So... So you mentioned that Cassini, when it's going through the the atmosphere, was you know getting huge pressure mm. um, applied to it. <coughs> Is it become a, a, a basically a shrinky now, or would it completely have disappeared <laughs> from any? It's, it's just the, obliterated. It's the size of a polywaffle. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's is probably, that scientifically proven? No, uh, no. I mean, because we, you know, once you lose contact with it, that's it. Right? <laughs> so yeah, it's gone. It's gone. But it's uh, it's it's been, you know, it's 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 safely somewhere in Saturn, you know, shrunk up, decaying, probably ripped apart by the, the forces it's under. So, yeah. Um, the irony of this story is we care so much about um, extra planetary moons way away from us, but we don't seem to care much about the space junk that we leave around our own planet. Oh, there's a lot of that. What was that, that movie that was... I watched it Gravity. this year, but it was came out the year before. Mm. It really highlighted the, the you know, the... The, the 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 amount of space junk, but also yeah. this scientific innovation that's also thinking about how to remove some of that yeah, space yeah, junk. Yeah. yeah, and there's a lot of that at the moment actually, because there's a lot of there's a lot of junk up there. And, and also briefly, the when you talked about Voyager, I thought about the which was the Star Trek film that found Vija. Mm. So uh, if this one comes back, it, maybe w- this will be us. <laughs> when it when it eventually returns to save whales or whatever it did in, in seen, Star Trek, yeah. Unfortunately, unlike Voyager, <laughs> which is still kicking on, yep. nothing like a plutonium power source. Uh, Cassini will not. Cassini well, is done. You never know. Uh, Science fiction. That's yeah, all I can say. But the data is uh, the data is still being examined, and I I would urge you folks to have a look at the NASA website because there is some amazing sort of storyline telling there around Cassini and all the things it's done. I've given you about five percent of it, but it's um it goes on for quite a while, so it's worth having a look. One o two. Yeah, you're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We've got about 12 minutes left until our end of year finish for 2017. Dr. Linden, you've got some science for us. Yes, Dr. Shane. Well, after that beautiful Cassini story, I was going to bring us back to Earth. And despite my apparently innate terror of penguins, when <laughs> I looked through, <laughs> didn't know about it until you told me those stories, Dr. Jen, and I started getting the shakes. But... 
the stories that really inspired me this year, it turns out, were all about birds. It turns out in the immortal mm. words of the eels, I like birds. Yes. And, you know, of course, we had the Bird of the Year poll uh, yep. that came out last week from BirdLife Australia and The Guardian. The magpie got the edge in the end over hashtag Team Bin Chicken, which, you know, controversial. But Sad, actually. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad Bin Chicken didn't win. Oh. Yeah, oh, yeah, Bin Chicken. Yeah. Yeah, no. No. Not a fan. Not a fan. Oh. The pelican should have won, but... Oh, I voted Pel- for the, yeah. um, the white-bellied Parrot. sea eagle. Yeah. Pelican, you're still on that one. Storm boy, mate. <laughs> Fair enough. Showing your age, mate. <laughs> but there were a few other birds on the short list that uh, also made the science news mm. this year. Of course, the splendid uh, blue fairy wren. Yeah, that's what I voted in, for. Came in a fifth, yep. Mm. Uh, and if you remember, there was a story earlier this year about how when the males change colour, they also change their behaviour. A study from Monash came out early in the year that said when the birds become blue, they get uh, a bit more scared. They run from dangers earlier and they stay hidden. Oh. But conversely, the males that stay brown become braver. They mm. don't run as quickly or they come out from hiding quicker, whether that's because... The bluebirds are more likely to get eaten and they're yeah. happy for those blue ones to get thrown under the bus or whether they just know that the bluebirds are keeping an eye out on the, the flock or the patch or the, the brown flurry. Ones are, brown ones are sort of going, they can't see me. Yeah. They can't yeah. see me. Whereas this blue fluoro thing over here, he's gone. Yeah. It's this interesting balance between yeah. I'm more likely to attract a mate if I'm looking blue and gorgeous, but I'm also more likely to be eaten by a cat if I'm blue. So mm. that was a study that came out about the fairy wrens. And then we also had the crested pigeon. I think that came in at 40th in the poll. And there was a paper last month that came out from ANU looking at the crested pigeons. You know, we see these pigeons everywhere. They make a really loud noise when they take off. And mm. uh, researchers have found that that noise is actually a communication method that they use within the flock to tell them that there's danger afoot. So they've got these feathers. It's the eighth feather on their wings and it's about half the width of the rest of the feathers and that makes a specific noise mm. when they take off in a hurry and that communicates to all the other birds that oh, there's someone coming quick run away and these uh, researchers at ANU they spent a lot of time with pigeons they monitored them flying away from fear or flying away just because they wanted to fly away and then they clipped their wings these eighth primary wings and um, recorded their sounds again and then they put some speakers on a car and they drove around the streets of Canberra <laughs> playing cool. these <laughs> different sounds right to oh. see how the just your <laughs> just your bog-standard pigeon would respond to these different noises. And it turned out that if you clip this little skinny feather, the um, the birds don't fly away. They notice it, but they don't they don't run away. So it was this eighth mm. wing that was making a specific... This eighth feather was making a specific noise. We should add that extra feather noise just on top of the standard car horn noise. <laughs> because pigeons do not get out of the way. I'd, and I'm one of those people who won't... I won't drive over birds, you know, and then, you know, I'll hit another car before I'll hit a bird generally. I know that's not the way it's supposed to be, but so be it. Um, and, you know, maybe you could put something in there to sort of scare them off yeah. and get them out of the way. Because yeah, they, they, they don't... Get out of the way. They don't get out of the way, but they mm. do respond to this to this noise mm. that their colleagues make if they're afraid. And it's not it's a noise that can't be faked. You know, there are other species. If you used a call to warn your colleagues that something bad was happening, other species could uh, imitate that call. But you can't fake that specific noise. I'm not even going to pretend to do it, but that noise <laughs> that pigeons make when they take off uh, can't be can't be faked. Mm. 
I'm not okay. doing the noise. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, there was that palm cockatoo up at Far North Queensland. Didn't even get the short list of the Bird of the Year poll, but that's the only animal we spoke about it early in the year, the only animal apart from us that can play drums. They mm. make their own um, drum sticks out of seed pods or sticks, and they, they play play their own rhythm every male has its own different kind of beat and uh it's thought that studying these birds could help us understand how music in humans has evolved as well so birds are awesome that's the moral of the story for me mm. as a climatologist birds are a, a good uh, shall i say canary in the coal mine but the, well. the migratory <laughs> the migratory you know aspects of birds around the world are a really important indicator of how the climate's going yeah absolutely absolutely mm. and um a lot of oh you're going to play the sound there, Doctor. He's trying. <laughs> Some, something just weird came out. It's heavy breathing that he recorded yesterday. That's a, is that a slow motion one? That's close enough. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit weird. Yeah, we love birds. Yes, love we birds. love birds. I got a lot of birds. Mm. I love my birds. Dr. Jin? Got something quick for us? Yeah, something that's really important, a major story that came out during the year. So we know physicists, you know, we've talked a lot about animals today, but physicists do occasionally do fairly useful things. I thought you were going to say a particular type of animal that you should keep clear of. <laughs> I could say that Which if you like, but you just said it for me, so it's okay. <laughs> but, you know, lots of physicists, you know, discover things in space and do all sorts of wonderful things. But I want to tell you about a very important discovery a physicist made this year. You know, when you pour from a bottle of wine how there's always that little drip that goes down the outside of the bottle. Not if you twist the bottle like a proper pourer. Well, most people in (laughs) restaurants have to put a serviette around it so they don't drip. Just twist the bottle, it doesn't happen. Well, anyway, this particular physicist spent three years (laughs) watching slow motion videos (laughs) of people pouring (laughs) wine bottles and watching the drip coming out. And he worked out that all you have to do is get a diamond cutter and do a little tiny um, circular ring just below the the tip of the bottle. If you do that little ring, then you don't have a drip (laughs) anymore. I smell a rat. I think he got a funding application to justify <laughs> drinking wine drinking for, three years. for three years. Yeah, I've got that, a diamond cut, so I'm going to try that tonight. Either that or watch people in slow motion. That's but, kind of a bit weird. But it made big news. It made big news that, you know, this physicist had discovered how to have a drip-free bottle of wine and now he's trying to patent it. And, you know, it's so simple to have this bottle. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's... that. I, I also smell a rat. And you've inspired a lot of people. I mean, Jeff, number one, says so be like, oh, I've just heard something on the radio. I've got to get a bottle of wine tonight. Yeah. That's right. Is it sp- yeah, or any other reputable wine, wine, yeah, before, wine before we get the results of the poll, I should just say, um, from another physicist, folks, just twist the bottle just as you end the pour and um, then it won't drip on you. Yeah, but that's that's not patented. <laughs> that one's free. Now, Liv, uh, how are we going? Are the poly, is the polywaffle still in the lead? No, I think it's still the flake. i got to check. It's the oh. flake. I think it's the flake. Oh, they, do, they do break up quick, though. It's not a good simulation. Twelve. Flakes in the lead. Flakes in the lead. 38%. Tricks you get two for one. So a fun science experiment for people to do over the summer. You know, it's psychology to see which people, which chocolate bar people have a greater fear response to. We can report dynamics in there. We'll report back first show back, right? Well, and the best thing is for the, for the older members of our audience, most of the younger members will not have seen the film Caddyshack. So this is new again. 
Yeah, get, 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 a, get a polywaffle, go to a public pool and just, just see what happens. I mean, it's fun, <laughs> it's fun for the family. <laughs> or yeah. just get out in nature and look at some birds. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe do we have, have to, to cover ourselves that. legally here? Uh, uh, I don't uh, think so. I don't think so. I'm sure, I'm sure the makers of polywaffle are loving it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> half of our audience no, probably the, never had one. Not the runners of swim pools, but. Uh, anyway, I, I need to say a few quick thank yous before we go, folks. Um, First of all, to uh, all the Triple R staff, especially Elizabeth, who does a lot of the guest uh, coordination with me. We have had 101 guests this year, Woo-hoo! which uh, oh, I have wow. to say, you know, feels easy compared to the 125 we had last year. But we had some uh, guests that were on for the whole show, so that changed the numbers a bit. But still, a fabulous group of people we had in. Um, the radiotherapy team that's often on before us for finishing on time, they're usually pretty good with that, so we thank them for that. Uh, the team of podcasters led by Fiona, who do a fantastic job of taking our show, taking out the music, because we don't have copyright of it and putting it up for people to listen and of course Fiona for doing the coordination of the podcasters because we do appreciate that greatly um, the, all the institutions that have helped us uh, with the guests and there's a whole lot of them ranging from um, WeHi the Flory uh, Institute for um, Neuroscience and Mental Health the Hudson Institute down near Monash uh, La Trobe University, Deakin, Swinburne, Monash University of Melbourne, the Centre for Eye Research Australia, all the other groups that I've missed, there's a stack of them um, where are you from, Lauren? Laura? Melbourne Uni. Melbourne Uni. Doherty. Doherty. Yeah. So, but look, we've, we've had, so, these organisations really go out of their way to prepare their guests for us. And they're often young researchers that haven't had experience before in, in the media. And I think most people would admit they're absolutely fantastic. Um, a big thank you to everyone who supported uh, the program and Triple R in general during the Radiothon. Um, this was another record year for us in terms of, of what we got from people there, and, and it does make the station go round. So a huge thank you to everyone who put their, their money into the station. It always blows me away when someone rings up and, and gives us money for what we do. Um, not, my standard's low, but you guys deserve it. Me, not so much. Um, but it is a huge effort for people to do that. So it's greatly appreciated we're going to hit you up again next year so you know um i'd also like to just uh, a big thank you to dr jeff i mean he has been on the show we would we were we bumped into each other at the the rch campus earlier in the week and we were trying to work out whether it was 12 or 15 years and we i think we both figured that we were both too old to remember it's it's been been a while um jeff good luck with your new job down in geelong i know you do it well just as you have um over the last few years at the murdoch um hope you enjoy enjoy geelong at least you're near the coast which is fantastic also a huge thank you to the entire team that we have here from einstein and gogo it's not a small group folks and they take uh, time out of their, their professional science careers to do it. Um, Dr. Lauren, who's now over at Harvard, but uh, she'll be still calling in next year via Skype. She was going to do it today, but some problem with Har- Harvard's internet, I think. I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who knows? Uh, we had to cancel it. Dr. Crystal, Chris KP, uh, Dr. Ray, Dr. Jenny, Dr. Catherine, Dr. Ailey, who'll be back uh, as, as per previous years, and her replacement, Dr. Linden, who has been fabulous. Uh, we're going to keep her because she's been really good. And hey, I won't leave. I'll just yeah. be here even if you and try to kick me out. <laughs> and what's better than one climatologist? Two. Two. So <laughs> we're going to keep them both. Uh, Dr. Laura and Liv, of course, we're doing our Twitter feed and the important polywaffle f- slash flake uh, <laughs> thing, which has really just capped off your work for the whole year. <laughs> um, but or crapped most- off. <laughs> but most of all, a massive thank you to everyone who listens to the show every week. Uh, we love doing it, and it's great to know that you guys love listening to it as well. And really quickly, a massive thanks to Dr. Shane for keeping us 
rabble under wraps and, you know, vaguely organised <laughs> and having fun every week. Someone said to me it was like herding cats and I said, no, 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 mice. <laughs> <laughs> Not cockroaches? <laughs> no, well, they're highly intelligent. You know, you know, you know I have a big love for cockroaches. Um, or shrimp. Yeah, or shrimp. <laughs> have a fantastic summer, folks, and we will chat to you again when we come back in the new year. Remember, science is everywhere and uh, you're listening to 3 R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.